Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, such a blessing just to, to look out and to see all you guys. Uh, you know, we love you guys so much, and yeah, it's just amazing. It's funny, you know, we've been a church for such a short period of time, but we've all been through so much together already, huh? It's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. But, you know, again, you know, we absolutely, as a family, feel your prayers, and we're just so blessed that, you know, you guys uplift us all the time, and, you know, us personally, Heidi and I, but then also just your faithfulness to lift up Trinity is just, it's something that really, really just comforts us uh, more than you guys could ever possibly know. And so we just want to say thank you so much one more time, just in case we haven't said it enough. Thank you. This morning we are taking up in Genesis chapter 43, and I can't help it. I'm very excited about this text this morning. I've been uh, really just beaming about it, you know, pretty much all week. I, I've already you know, tipped my hat and shared with a couple different people, and uh, you know, I've already given them pretty much my best. So for them, it's just going to be an old hat. But you know, for me, I, I was just really excited about it. You know, the Lord really blessed me in it. And so without further ado, I just want to jump into it because I just want to get into it because, like I said, the, the Lord really blessed me. And so uh, why don't we look together now, Genesis chapter 43, and we're going to take up in verse 15. So the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and rose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. Then they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house. They talked with him at the door of the house and said, oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and they gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant our father is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. 
And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Father, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. Lord, we know it is perfection, Lord. Everything that we need, Lord, everything that we know about you has come from your word. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this congregation now, Lord, that you would make your word alive in our hearts and our minds. Lord, I pray that you would distill each one of our spirits, Lord, that the things of this day, the things of yesterday and last week, last month, Lord, in this year, would all fade to the background, Lord, that only you and your word would remain that we may be built up, Lord, a people chosen by you to bear your name and your witness to all the ends of the earth. We ask this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, in quick review, for those of you who weren't here last week, we had an interesting time where the brothers, the last time that they met with Joseph, they came and they didn't recognize, this is, they didn't recognize Joseph, their brother, they, this is about 13 years after uh, they had sold Joseph into slavery and sent him on his way. And they came before Joseph. They did not recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. And at first he was harsh to them, but then at, after a little bit of, uh, you, you know, paying back a little bit what was coming to them, put him in jail for, uh, in the dungeon for three days and the whole bit, he realized, hey, you know what? The dreams that the Lord gave, there were two of them. One of them has been fulfilled as my brothers have come and bowed before me. But there was a second dream that the Lord had given, and that was that his whole family was to come to Egypt and bow before him. And so Joseph's like, hey, you know what? I, I got to get my brothers out of here, but I got to bring them back. So he tells him, hey, you may leave, but I'm going to keep Simeon here. You guys go back and you bring your younger brother Benjamin to me. He goes, if you do that, it'll all be good and you'll be able to trade in the land and, 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 and we'll, be, we'll be friends. He said, but if you don't do it, he says, then I will know you are liars. He goes, and I will kill your brother, Simeon. That was inferred. He goes, but you will not see my face again. And so his brothers left. They come home. And Jacob, he, he, you know, now he's really upset because he, he already says, hey, you guys have bereaved me. You have grieved me to the quick because he goes, Joseph is already gone because he thinks they, they told him that Joseph was killed. And so he says, Joseph is gone, and now Simeon is gone. And see, again, he believes that he's probably going to die in the, in the dungeon. He goes, and now you wish to take Benjamin as well? And that, again, is uh, Joseph's uh, younger brother, the only other son of his favored wife, Rachel. And he goes, and, and Jacob didn't want to do it. And so he says, no, I will not let you take him. Even though Reuben said, hey, you can kill your grandchildren, my kids, if you want, if I don't bring him back. And it's like, that, that wasn't very comforting, Reuben. I'm sorry. But Jacob's like, I, he will not go with you. Well, time passes, and we're not really sure how long, how much time passed, but enough time where all of a sudden the food that they had bought from Egypt, at least they thought they bought it, but then when they found their money in their sack, they're they terrified because Joseph did a grace for them. He, he, he blessed them with, he's like, I don't want your money. I don't want your money. And so he, he blessed them back with that money, and they were terrified of it. And, you know, we talked last week how sometimes grace is something that we don't recognize as grace. Many times God's grace, God's favor for us is something that takes a form that we are not looking for, not desiring after. And yet, from hindsight, 
after time has passed, we recognize that, oh, that indeed was grace. And so the food runs out, and Jacob says, hey, go buy us some food. And the brothers are like, absolutely not. And, and Judah was the main spokesperson here, and he's like, we will not go. That guy treated us badly the first time, and if we try to show up there without Benjamin, he said, we will not even see his face. It will be a waste of time. We will not go. And then food runs out, and he's like, okay, okay, take Benjamin, but don't take Benjamin alone. Let, let's make a gift. Let's have some pistachio nuts, and let's have some balm. Let's give him some honey. Let's give him some things that, you know, that the land of Canaan you know, is known for and famous for. Let, let's take a present to him. And they said, okay, but... Jacob only agreed to that after Judah did something that was quite amazing because Judah's character has been very seedy up until this point, hasn't it? But Judah says, he doesn't say, kill my children if I don't bring them back. He says, let me be accountable for the boy. He says, deliver him into my hands. He goes, and you will require his life at my hands. He says, if I do not bring him back, he says, I will be to blame forever. A beautiful moment. This is like the rise. I said it was like the rising of the star of Judah, man. He was like, it's like Judah, finally, yes. And so now, now we have uh, these guys are getting ready to head back now, and they're about to stand before Joseph the second time, but they're going to stand on Joseph's terms. Notice that they, you know, Jacob wanted him to, hey, just guys, just go back, go back and buy us some some food, and Judah's like, ain't happening, Dad, no way. He is, we will not see his face unless we go with Benjamin, our brother. And so the sons of Israel are going to stand before their brother once again, but they are standing before their, what they believe is the Lord of the land of Egypt, on his terms, not on their terms. And they are going with their brother Benjamin. Now, this kind of actually reminds me of a conversation that I had uh, with Trinity uh, a couple weeks ago. It was actually uh, the, the last communion uh, Sunday. And she and I were sitting there, and she likes to come with me, and Sarah started coming too. But Trinity, for quite a, quite a while, has been coming with me to help set up the church. And so we're sitting there, and I'm just talking to Trinity. I'm like, hey, Trin. I said, can you imagine one day we are going to be standing before our God in heaven? We will see him face to face. It'll be like just looking. It's like in the same way that I'm looking at Bryson right now, it's like, there he is. There's Jesus. Or, oh, look, there's the Father. There he is. I can, can you see him? Can you hear his voice? Can you see you know, just the glory of his countenance? And she and I were just amusing on that. And you know, we, we think about stuff and talk about stuff like that a little bit more nowadays. But it was just this amazing thing, that we, this conversation that we were having, just imagining that day when we would stand before our God. But as I was preparing this message, as I was just meditating on these verses, I thought, but how will we stand? How will we stand before the Lord in that day? And there's this common quote which says, a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. Now that's speaking in legal terms, if, you, if you're going to rep represent yourself in a court of law. And, you know, this, this is actually 99.999% of the time very sound advice. Why? Because a person who's unfamiliar with the court system, with the language of law, with the rules of presenting a case, and the history of similar cases will very likely have their hat handed to them in the court of law, and the book will be thrown at them. Whatever the other attorney wants is pretty much what's going to happen. Now, today, however, there are many people, there are many people today who 
just throw caution to the wind in that great wisdom that 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 saying represents and they say hey you know what i have no need of any help whatsoever when i'm entering into the courthouse the highest court not just of the land of the united states but of the universe itself entering into the courtroom of the almighty god that created them and a lot of people will come with this mindset like no no no, i'll represent myself and Somebody might say, but the penalty is death and eternal torment if you lose. And the DA is also the defense attorney, and he actually has already personally paid your debt for you. And that person and many people today say, no, no, I'll convince the judge that I should be acquitted. And then, you know, once again, the resounding voice comes out, but you're guilty. And the mindset so often is, I don't see how that bears any relevance to my case. Do you? Do you guys see how ridiculous that thought process is? Wait a second. If you were going to go to just not even the Ninth Circuit, if you're just going to go to a local judge today and, so, and so you were guilty, maybe you stole something from a thrift store, it was just a weak moment and you did it, it's like, oh, I really want a pack of gum. And you stole it and, and that storekeeper caught you and they were really unhappy because you're the fourth person who's robbed them that month and they throw the book at you and they take you to court and they do the whole thing. I mean, they have you on video surveillance and the whole bit, and you, know, you go before the judge, and you're like, ah, forget the attorney. I don't need Johnny Cochran or anybody like that. I'm just going to do this myself. Do you think that's a foolish idea or a, a smart idea? It's a foolish idea, especially because they're guilty. And then you find out that the, the person, the DA, the prosecuting attorney, has he's also the defense attorney. And he's just like, hey, you know what? I felt sorry for you, so I paid the price for you. Don't even worry about it. No, 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 no. I'm insulted that, that that clerk has taken me before the court, so I want to plead my case before the judge. But you're guilty. What does that have to do with anything? That's the mindset of many people today, isn't it? It is such a crazy mindset. And yet, it, it, when, when you say it like that, when you say it in that context, it seems ridiculous. It seems absolutely, utterly absurd. And yet, when people are dealing with their eternal souls, they have that mindset and they think, hmm, I don't see what the problem is. What's the matter with that? I don't know. This morning, we actually have an amazing picture of that day. That day when all will stand before the throne of God. This morning's text is an amazing picture. And some in that day will stand before the bema seat of Christ. Some will go before there, and they will just, it's just glory. It's all good. It's just rewards. But others will stand before the great white throne of God. Some will come foolishly on their own terms without Benjamin, as we're going to see in a moment, relying on their own ability to convince the judge of their merit, while others, like the sons of Israel, will refuse to even stand in the presence of the judge without Benjamin being by their side. This morning's text is something that is theologically known as a similitude. And you think, that's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? A similitude. Basically, uh, what it means is it's something that has the quality or state of being similar to something else. Okay, this morning's text, we're going to be looking at uh, a couple key players. Now, when we've been looking at the story of Joseph as a whole, we, Joseph has really kind of played the part of the Christ figure, isn't it? He's the redeemer who is rejected by his brethren and then later is going to be revealed to them with blessings and all of that, right? 
Joseph typically is portrayed as the Christ figure. But in this morning's text, within this similitude that is found in the second half of chapter 43, we're going to see Joseph is going to change hats kind of the same way that I did. You know, I was doing the worship, but then I, I, I put on the teaching hat now and sat here before you at the pulpit. And Joseph, he's going to set aside the Messiah figure, and he's going to take on to himself the character of God the Father. His younger brother, Benjamin, is now going to take up the role of Christ in this picture. Now, the reason why this is a similitude and not a type, because you've heard of like typologies within the scriptures and things like that, is because that it's only similar to the actual events that will happen in the greater reality of heaven. Okay, what you have here is obviously Benjamin is not Joseph's son, right? So it's not a perfect picture of, you know, God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. But it's interesting enough, uh, this guy Eric from River 47, as I was sharing with him and Bryson about what I was going to be teaching on about being in Christ, he said, he had this really cool little point, which was actually quite profound. He said, yeah, it's interesting because Benjamin is the only brother of Joseph that has no recorded sin. And so he really does take up the type of Jesus Christ within the similitude. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool, man. Well done. And so I was kind of geeking out on that one as well. But uh, join with me, look back with me now in verse 15 of chapter 43. It says, so the men took that present and Benjamin and took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. Now, more than likely, this place, don't imagine them inside this great building with huge halls and things like that. More than likely where they were, as was customary in that day, they were probably standing in the gates of the city. Usually kings and very high-ranking officials, the elders of a city, would, they would do their business in the gates of a city. Now, we know that Joseph is in charge of the food distribution and all that kind of stuff. And so probably what would happen is one of the gates of the city, the people would come and he would do business with them there. Okay, this wasn't a comfortable place of leisure or anything like that. It was a place of work and judgment. Okay? In our similitude, this place where they are meeting Joseph for the second time now, it wouldn't be like the city of God, the new Jerusalem, when you're looking to heaven. No, no, no. This is, this is the same kind of typology as that you would see as people stand before the throne of God. Okay? Go ahead and keep your finger here, but turn to Revelation chapter 20, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. When you get to Revelation chapter 20, it's at the very end of your Bible. Look with me at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, when we look, coming back now to Genesis chapter 43, when we look at this, think about the picture of what's going on, because it really gives great insights into, into just what was, what was happening, what it was like, what the feel was. Now, remember, the famine is extremely severe, right? It's the worst famine that has ever hit. 
you know, when Pharaoh, when he received the dream from the Lord, he said, talking about the cows, he had never seen uglier. This is a bad famine. In all of his days, in the recorded history of Egypt, he had never even seen anything as bad as this. Joseph later uh, revealed to him that that was representative of the famine that was coming. Okay, so now as the lands all around Egypt and Egypt itself, as they dried up, as the famine came and there was no food, you're going to have literally people from everywhere coming to Egypt. The moment they found out that there's bread in Egypt, you've got to know that every single person, every single person in anywhere remotely near them is going to come. What's that going to result in? Crowded, hot, dusty, huge lines. You think Disneyland is bad? Dude, ain't nothing on this. Right? If you've ever seen any pictures back in like World War II and stuff like that when they were doing like the gas rationing and things like that, and you see like these huge lines, right? that's what this was like. Everybody from every walk of life, rich and poor alike, were standing waiting to have an audience with Joseph. Okay, huge lines waiting for their transactions of food in Egypt in the same way that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through that, that we just read, those are going to be, now imagine, all of the dead. We're talking about literally from Adam and Eve until the day that the Lord calls us home and after the tribulation. Every single person who has ever lived on the face of this earth will stand before God. Now, it doesn't say how long that, this whole process takes. I have no clue. When you're talking about the eternal realm and all that, I suppose it doesn't really matter because we've got plenty of time. Right? But in the end, in the end, billions upon billions upon billions of people will stand before the Lord and each one will have a presence, a personal audience with the Lord and the books of their lives, the books of their, of their works will be opened before the Lord. Very much like this. You see how the, the similitude, it, it really, it, it kind of comes together very well. In verse 16 of chapter 43, it says, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Now, as I was looking at this, I couldn't help but to notice that who did Joseph talk to? Did he say anything to his brothers in this moment? Now, Joseph is sitting in the seat of the city in the place of judgment. And does he have one word to say to his brothers at this time? Not one. Not one word did he say to them. But he did speak to the steward, who very well represents the Holy Spirit of God. And he was the one, this steward, this unnamed servant. And the Holy Spirit always shows up in Scripture as an unnamed servant. Right? This unnamed servant, this steward of the house of Joseph, he was the one to lead them past this, this judgment seat. And he took them into the dwelling place of Joseph the personal dwelling place of Joseph. And there he was to prepare a great feast in their honor. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty amazing picture that we have here. Why? Why? Because Joseph looked up and he saw Benjamin. He saw the sun. When we travel through the valley of the shadow of death, we will be ushered past the great white throne. And the Lord God Almighty, he will not utter one word of condemnation or judgment to us. Isn't that amazing? I get, I'm getting the chills. I literally, I, I've been geeking out over this text 
all week because it's amazing because you know literally in that day because the lord will look up and who will he see will he see us will he see our works will he see our good deeds no he will look up and he will see the son he will see benjamin he will see the lord jesus christ and when he does there is not one word of condemnation in the mouth of god when he looks upon us and sees his son, because in his son there is no shadow of turning, there is no wickedness, there is no depravity, there is no sin. And the blood of Jesus Christ blots out every transgression that you and I have ever committed in our entire lives. Amen? Amazing. Verse 19. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, We indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Now, you guys remember when they found out, remember the first, when they're at the encampment, they found one bag of money, and it freaked them out, and they're like, oh no, why is God so against us? You know, they, they literally, this grace of Joseph, they were freaking out about. It terrified them. And then they continue traveling on. They're just like, oh, this is going to be bad. This is going to be really bad. And they get all the way back home. They tell the story about J- to Jacob, and Jacob kind of gets all upset. And then they open the rest of their bags, and they see the rest of their money, and them and Jacob really freak out now. They're like, oh, no. And the brothers, all they can equate it to is that God is punishing us because of what we did to Joseph, because as he, cr- he cried and wept and pleaded for us to, to not do what we were going to do, we ignored it, and we sent him off with the Ishmaelites anyway. That's all they could equate it to. And so here they are, now they've come back, and, you know, hey, hurdle number one, we've got Benjamin with us, got us past the judgment seat, and now here we are in his house, in Joseph's house, and now they're afraid. Isn't this like us, though? They're afraid because of their sin, And they believe that God is punishing them, that now as they've been brought away from the judgment seat and they're in the house and they think that they're going to be there and what Joseph's going to do is he's going to accuse them and then make them slaves in his house. That's what they're thinking. That's what their mindset is. How many people think that? How many people think that when they stand before God, even in Christ, they have this guilty conscience that somehow God is just going to, he's going to, you know, yell at them and be mean to them and make them slaves. And yet, what was his command to, in this similitude to the servant, the picture of the Holy Spirit? Go prepare a table for them. Go prepare a meal for them. Slay the fatted calf. We're going to eat together. We're going to commune together. But I love this in verse 23, because remember, what, what was the quote that the brothers of Israel, I'm sorry, the, the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Israel, what was the quote that they said? God has done this. God is against us. And yet, now listen to this. But he said, and I, lo- I love this because you know, I'm talking about how this steward is a type of, of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says, and you tell me what you think. But he, that is the steward, said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. That's not familiar to anybody. Yeah, it sure does, doesn't it? Luke chapter 24, verse 36. These are the first words Jesus said to his disciples after he rose from the dead. Remember, he showed himself in the midst of them. The doors were closed. They're all terrified. And Jesus appeared and he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Right? He's speaking literally the words of Christ here, or Christ is speaking the words of him. 
But it, it, it's amazing. I, I love it. And then he says, listen to this, because what the brothers feared was that God was against them and that these things were all working against them. And yet now this man says, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sex. So who gave the treasure? Who is he declaring now? Grammatically, we, we know that this is, you know, the re, in real life, it was the steward who did it. But he says, your God has given you treasure. And now listen to this. I had your money. So now just grammatically speaking, and maybe this is going a little mystical, not bad, not, not, not too far of a stretch for our similitude, but in the end, the, the, the steward says, God gave you the treasure in your sacks, I'm the one who had your money. Wow, great type of the Holy Spirit, huh? Who, what, what, is the, what is one of the uh, things that the Holy Spirit does when he comes into a believer and gives life to them? He gives gifts, doesn't he? He comes giving gifts, the spiritual gifts that are used for the edification of the body of Christ. Cool, huh? Very cool. It was funny because this thing that they, that they didn't understand, this grace that was unrevealed to them, this grace that they thought was fear and pain and all that, this thing that they thought was going to be such trouble, turns out to be grace after all. This is the grace of Joseph revealed to them. They had no idea what it was, and they feared it. And how many anxious nights did they have over this grace that was bestowed to them? And yet when they finally come face to face with Joseph and his steward, the steward says, no, 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 it wasn't anything bad. You don't have anything to fear. I gave it to you. It was a gift. We had your money. It's okay. And he comforts them. Holy Spirit being the great comforter, isn't he? Verses 25 through 26, he says, Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand, into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. Now, I love this, because they have this gift that Jacob said, hey, you're going to take Benjamin, but take this gift also, the pistachios, the honey, the balm. And as I was looking at this, without Benjamin now, because this gift, this gift represents works, doesn't it? This gift represents our goodness, our good deeds, our righteousness. That's what this gift represents. Now, would Joseph have received this gift if Benjamin wasn't with them? Would they have even been able to have the audience with him to say, here is our gift? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It and they would have been thrown out before they ever even got to the gift. And in the same way, we, if we come before the Lord with our works, with our righteousness, before we ever even have an opportunity to say, look, Lord, look at these good things that I've done, he's going to open the books and say, did you do this? Yes. Did you do this? Yes. Did you do this? Yes. Did you bring your son? Or did you bring your brother, Benjamin? My son, Jesus Christ? No. Lake of fire. Go. Away from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Heavy, huh? It was the presence of Benjamin that sanctified the gift. It was the presence of Benjamin. Because remember, Joseph set the the ordinances. He says, these are the parameters of fellowship and relationship with me. This is the way that you will come before me. This is the way that you will see my face. You bring your brother, Benjamin. 
And the Lord will say the same thing. If you want to have fellowship with me, if you want to see my face, and not in a cowering fear, a recoiling fear, but if you want to see my face, he says, then you must bring my son. You must stand before me with Benjamin next to you. And that is a very comforting thing to me because we who love the Lord Jesus Christ and have accepted him, when we stand before God, guess what? Who's going to be standing right there with us? Who's going to represent? And when, if even anybody dare to raise an accusation against the bride of Christ, which trust me, nobody will, but even if they did, Jesus would be right there saying, no, I paid for it. That is my blood that covers their innocent father. We have a mediator. We have our defense attorney, don't we? Amazing. It's because of Jesus Christ that our works will be accepted. And as our, as our works apart from Christ will be thrown out, but in Christ, those very same works, it's funny because th- those same works that before the Lord, because you know, he said in Isaiah that our good works are as filthy rags before him, right? Our righteous deeds apart from Christ will be an abomination that is cast out like refuse. But in Christ, and this is, this is the cool thing about God and the glory of God, is that those, same, those very same works, those very same works that outside of Christ would be thrown out are now sanctified in Christ. They are refined in the fire of his blood, the tribulation that he faced on the cross, and from them God will literally remove the dross, that is those worthless things. Right? He will literally remove the dross from our works, the sin from our works, And he will purify them into gold tried by the fire, and they will be rendered into crowns that will be a holy, sanctified, and glorious offering worthy of God that he will accept as our worship to him as we cast them before his throne. Those are the works, those are the crowns that will come at the bema seat of Christ when he gazes upon our works with his eyes that are as a flame of fire as the book of Revelation declares. And he will render from our sinful lives gold and jewels and precious stones and the wood, hay, and stubble, the sin that has corrupted our lives so to the very core of us will be consumed and burned and will be no more. Isn't that amazing? Verse 29. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, now listen to this, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. And you know, in this picture of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we see this beautiful intimacy of their relationship. The beautiful just the closeness of who they are. You know, Joseph, he looks down upon his brother, and I don't know if any of you guys have siblings or anything else like that. And even though in our fallen world, our siblings can be very annoying and things like that, at the same time, there is this deep love for our family, isn't there? You can literally have a child who's beaten by their parents, abused verbally and all that, and yet those children will still stand by their parents, won't they? Now, there comes a time when a child will say, you know, at time out, I'm out of this. But for so long, children will put up with so much. 
wives, spouses will put up with so much. And yet when you have a true relationship between husband and wife, between father and son, mother and daughter, there is this intimacy that is so beautiful and priceless and pure that is just glorious to behold, isn't it? And when we look at God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, when we look at the intimacy where Jesus looks to the Father and says, Abba, Father, Daddy, when we look upon God the Father whom loves the Son, he says, you know, he spoke and it sounded like thunder to some, but others heard the voice. And he says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That we see this beautiful relationship between the Godhead and the Holy Spirit, though it's not really pointed to here, but see, the Holy Spirit is right within that, that, that very same love, that affection. It's, it's a beautiful thing to look at and to consider, the love of God. Verse 32. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the, to the Egyptians. Here we see Joseph being set apart from everybody else. And it's not a far stretch to say, hey, you know what? This very easily represents the holiness of God. God is holy. He is pure. And even of all of the angels of heaven, of all the angels of heaven, there was only one initially. I'm sure he's been replaced, though the scriptures don't say so. But there was one angel who was the anointed cherub who walked back and forth, to and fro in the presence of God, through the fires of the altar, the coals of the altar, Lucifer, the son of the morning, before he fell. Right? God is holy. He is set apart, and it is only through Christ that we are allowed to even come into his presence. It is Christ who sits upon the Father's throne. Now, the church will have their own thrones, and you, know, you can look at semantics, whether those little... those. 24 thrones, the elders around it. Are those part of the overall throne of God? Maybe. But in the end, it is Christ who sits on his Father's throne. He is holy. He is set apart. But in verse 33, it says that they sat before him. And in the same way, we will sit before our God. We will sit in his presence. There are thrones that have been prepared for the church, for the bride of Christ. And that is an amazing truth a glorious truth. We will sit in the presence of our God. We will hear his voice. We will sing with the angels crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There is no greater honor. Do we understand that? Do we believe it? Do we feel that longing in our hearts for that day when we will see him face to face and know him even as we are known? That is our destiny, Christians. That is what we have to look forward to. Not only that, but it says that he set them in birth order, right? From the oldest to his birthright down to the youngest. He set them all, and it says that they looked at each other and they were astonished, weren't they? They looked at each other and they were like, how did he do that? How did he do that? And, you know, this is a beautiful picture of that, even though our knowledge of God, because how can the finite mind truly grasp and comprehend an infinite God? Can it? No, it can't. What is infinity, really? 
I mean, when you look at the reality of infinity, yeah, it's a number that just keeps on going. But when you look at true, like, eternity and eternal things, it's like the, the little infinity symbol actually jumps off the page and consumes everything else in the entire known universe. The, the reality of an infinite God is something that is beyond our comprehension. We can't, we can't truly grasp it. But in that day, we will. In that day, we will. But even though our knowledge of him in this day is as through a, a mirror and a dim one at that, someday we will know him even as we are known. Someday we will comprehend God. And that to me is amazing. That by itself, that fact, that, that, that's scriptural. That's scriptural. One day we will know him even as we are known. He knows the very number of the hairs on our head. That's an exciting thing to me. That's an exciting prospect. In verse 34, it says, Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. Now, how many of you guys have just, when I read that, didn't sound anything too amazing? Just, I've read this verse, I don't know how many times, but I've never really noticed anything really special about that verse. But as I was preparing this, and, and just like the, the touching of the Holy Spirit on my conscience, do you understand what I just read? What happened here? What just happened? Who's Joseph? He's the second in command of all of Egypt. Who are his brothers? A bunch of Hebrews that the Egyptians consider an abomination even to sit in their presence. What did Joseph just do? Let me read it again. Then he, who's he? Joseph. We're speaking about Joseph right now. Then he took servings to them. What? What? Can you imagine the Egyptians in his court, in his house, who are eating there too, go, when they see Joseph arise from his spot of honor, pick food off of his table, and go set it down before them? Guys, you have to understand, this is, this is an incredible thing that's going on here. This, the, the Egyptians at this moment would be like, what is he doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? That's an abomination. What are you doing? And yet, and yet, here we see the unsearchable riches of God's love and grace because he is going to do likewise and much more for us in eternity. Yeah, see, that's the thing. See, the brothers, when they came before Joseph, when they came to his house, what did they think? Oh, we're going to be slaves to Joseph. He's going to put us in the dungeons. He's going to do whatever to us. And yet, what was his desire? He sends the Holy Spirit. He sends his steward. He says, go prepare a feast for them. And then he sets a table before his table. And then he rises and he takes from his own table, from his own resources, a feast fit for a king, and he sets it before them. And yet we see the favor of Benjamin, don't we? Five times as great. Jesus is truly the champion of humanity, the, the last Adam, what Adam should have been, right? And we see this, we see this incredible picture of God's love and grace and one of his most beautiful qualities of all, his humility. For he is the omnipotent God who deserves all glory and all praise and all honor and all power and all dominion. And yet, what does he do? He does the same thing that Jesus did on the night of his glory. He humbled himself. Jesus removed his outer garment, put a, a towel around his waist, and he took the wash basin, the, the job of the lowest of all slaves, and washed his disciples' feet. 
And now we see a picture of God the Father himself taking from his table and giving to those who are called in his son. Can you see why I was so excited about this text today? It's an amazing truth and things that we so often forget, things that so often drift from our consciousness that we, we, we don't recall them, we don't live within the light of this grace and this honor and this love and this truth that is so true and so tangible and so real. It is more real than my leg. It's more real than my body, than this pulpit, which is flimsy. But hey, you know what? It's more real than the metal that this thing is made of. This reality that God is going to demonstrate his grace to us for all eternity. We, Yes, we are servants. We are doulos, bond servants of the living God, our wills being entirely consumed by his will. Yes, that is true. And yet, how does Jesus treat his disciples? How does God treat his slaves? He serves them. He loves them. He gives them a place of honor and glory. Such is our God. Such is only one of the reasons, one of the millions, uncountless, innumerable reasons why we should give glory and worship our God. And then it says, so they drank and were merry with him. Isn't that a great way to end a chapter? And they drank and they were merry with him. So coming back full circle now, how will we stand before God? How will we stand before the living God? Will we stand as the proverbial fools, talking like that quote that I read to you earlier? Will we stand as the proverbial fools defending ourselves? In fact, not from the accusation against us, but defending ourselves from his grace that we might have the right to participate in the feast of hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? Mark 9, 44? Or will we stand with the wise, with boldness and great confidence that we will partake from God's table at the marriage supper of the Lamb? In Christ. In Christ. How will we stand before God? It is a choice that has been left to us. Yes, you know, we've talked about God's sovereignty just within the weeks past. We've talked about the ultimate dominion of God. And yet still, in his dominion, he has left this one responsibility unto, unto us. How will we stand before him? Will we stand before him by our works? Well, we've seen in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, how that's going to go. Or will we stand with Benjamin, quote-unquote, at our side? Will we stand in Christ? That is our choice. And it is left to us, and God will not take that choice from you. In his sovereignty, he has decided, he has decreed that that is his perfect will. And he will not rob you of it. In conclusion, this phrase, in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is found many times in the scriptures. And I, I did a word, I'd actually encourage you guys to do the same. Do a word search. If you don't have, you know, Bible software, go on to Blue Letter Bible and type in the phrase, in Christ. And I want to share you just a few of the words that are connected to this phrase, in Christ. Faithfulness, grace, and peace. 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, chosen to be holy without blame before him in love, adoption as sons, accepted, redemption, dead to sin but alive to God, the gift of eternal life, no condemnation, freedom from the law of sin and death. We cannot be separated from the love of God, one body with all who believe, sanctification, hope, triumph. The veil which blinds us from the truth is taken away in Christ. We are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Liberty, the exceeding riches of his kindness and grace toward us. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness from God. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, for just the glory of this truth, Lord, from this similitude through your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for these things. And we just pray, Lord, that by your spirit, Lord, that we would take these things home, Lord, that they wouldn't just remain floating around in the air or somewhere in cyberspace, Lord, but we pray that you would help us to take these things home with us, Lord, that we would consider them, Lord, that we would meditate on the ramifications of these incredible truths, Lord, that our lives would be changed because of them. Lord, it is our desire as your people, Lord, to stand not by our works, not by our cunningness, the strength of our arm, or any such thing. But Lord, we very humbly come before you in Christ alone. To your praise and honor and glory. Let us stand before our God and our maker as we sing this last hymn.
Father, we stand before you in complete awe of you, Lord, and your goodness to us, your children. Lord, we stand here in the power of Christ, washed by his blood, redeemed. Lord, all glory is to you. Our lives in every breath belongs to you. May they be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray.